0: Heavenly Father, God, we just ask your blessing on this time, Lord. We ask that you illuminate your word, Lord, that you soften our hearts uh, just to be receptive to your Holy Spirit, God, to every leading, to every movement, God. Uh, We just ask that we get out of the way, Lord, and give our lives to you. And we ask in Jesus' name. So Jeffrey said that we can't do series anymore. Um, So we've been in a really substantial non-series. About David. He didn't say anything about mini series. So we've spent two weeks talking about David and Bathsheba. So we're gonna make it three and make it a mini series here. Uh, But today we're gonna focus on Bathsheba's side of it and kind of look at uh, what's there. How, How would you approach that? But let's just, if you haven't been here the past two weeks, let's do a quick recap. David and Bathsheba, pretty famous story in the Bible. Um, The first week Jeffrey talked about it, he basically unpacks the story, and what happens is King David is king, his armies go out to to fight, it's the time of year that you go and fight, he does not go with them. He sees a pretty girl on a rooftop, he thinks, I want that, and he's the king, so he gets that, and then she becomes pregnant, and he's like, oh no, consequences, and a giant conspiracy <laughs> unravels to try to cover up that. It ends up in murder. It ends up in that he also has uh, incorporated one of his generals now as an accomplice to that murder in many ways. Um, and Jeffrey did a great job of showing, despite you know the temptation for us to interpret it like that in some way it was Bathsheba's fault, like what is she doing on a roof naked, like... This was not a Cialis commercial. This is not what she was doing. This was um, actual like a ritual bath that she was doing that she was supposed to according to the law. So she's not complicit in any of this. David owns all the fault. It's probably the most reasonable interpretation of the text. So last week we looked at, well, then what happens? Because he gets confronted by Nathan the prophet who's like, you messed up. And to David's credit, he owns, yeah, I did mess up. Um, and then he feels the guilt of that, of this tremendous, amazing sin, just, just atrocity, and his joy is gone. And we talked about um, the idea that you know, guilt is not just this cognitive, intellectual thing, but it is this holistic, emotional... Um, if you guys would put Proverbs uh, 17.22 up, um, that it's emotional and even has physio- physiological effects... Proverbs 17, says, A joyful heart is good medicine, but a broken spirit dries up the bones. This idea of, of your joy being gone, um, depression like, can set in and has just ridiculous effects. With that, the thing is, David, in the, in the way that we are all talking about ourselves um, the last two weeks, Talking about people that have decided to punt their joy, right? Made a bad decision and then had guilt. So we had punted our joy. So great that that's the first two weeks because that is all of us, every single one of us, in some way or another, probably not as bad as David, but we have all sinned against the Lord and, and against others. And had, And as uh, Jeff said last week, we don't feel guilty. We are guilty. And that's why we feel guilty, Right? And so we all need the Lord. In addition to that, though, in addition to all of us having punted our guilt, I think some of us, probably more of us than you would think, are probably more in this boat.
1: Here comes the... Here comes the... Yeah,
0: so I I think, I mean, that video is funny, but a very serious thing is many of us have experiences where we didn't pick up that ball that is the joy and kick it down the field. We got blindsided and got it taken from us, right? And that is Bathsheba, right? That is her to a T, like unsuspecting. The king says you got to do this, and he's the king, so you got to do this. And just let's recap her situation. She has now been part of adultery, and now she is without her husband who has been murdered. And in addition to that, if you look at 2 Samuel Uh, 12, 15, and 18. Let's get there. We see, and and this is because of David's sin. We we don't get any indication that this is something Bathsheba did. The Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick. It's interesting they don't even mention her name to make it very clear this is a David thing. They just call her Uriah's widow then verse 18, then it happened on the seventh day that the child died. So now, in addition to that, she has a, a very young child that died. I cannot even begin to begin to imagine what that would be like, to even begin to have sympathy into that deep of tragedy. Um, but I know there's all sorts of tragedy, all sorts of injustice that we've experienced, whether it's you've been cheated in business or physical abuse or emotional abuse or just losing a a loved one or just um, having someone walk out of your life for no reason. There's all sorts of things like that. With Bathsheba, what's challenging is this. With David, we're like, well, what do we do if we find ourselves in David's situation? Oh, great, David wrote Psalm 51. We can do that. (laughs) Um, I find myself, side note, praying that like daily daily because um, I need to, but what if you're Bathsheba? We don't have a psalm that she has wrote. We actually have very little about her beyond that. I, I don't want to necessarily put words in her mouth, but there there's a recent group. They're called Super Chick. Excuse the name. Yes, I do listen to a band called Super Chick. Feel free to judge me. Um, but they, they have this song called Beauty from Pain, and I think it may capture... Where Bathsheba probably was at. Listen to these lyrics. My whole world is the pain inside me. The best I can do is just get through the day. When life before is only a memory, I wonder why God lets me walk through this place. And though I can't understand why this happened, I know that I will when I look back someday and see how you've brought beauty from ashes. And made me as gold purified through these flames. And I think it's probably easier to feel the first part immediately. So biblically, it, if we don't have anything that, that Bathsheba is given to us when we're in that situation, biblically, where do we go? Where would anyone point her? And I think it's Romans 8. So go ahead and open up to Romans 8. We're going to be there today. So Romans is uh, Paul's more or less magnum opus of theology. It's really, really deep. And in addition to that, Romans 8 is a really meaty chapter with a lot of key theological concepts, which just means it says a whole lot about who God is, how we interact with God, about the creation, about how God works. And so To to get where we want to go, we're going to have to cover quite a few verses, so we're not going to cover every single theological issue in here. We're going to gloss over some that you're like, I wish Mike would talk about that. If you have more questions, you can email Jeffrey Cranford, and he will be happy (laughs) happy to address those there. Um, And yes, Romans 8 is where we find Romans 8.28. For all things work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose, right? Yeah, let's, let's just tell Bathsheba that verse. That is probably not helpful, right? That, um, I don't know if you've experienced, I have been on both ends of this, of, of being a moron saying this to people, and then also having really well-meaning people say this to me, like um, when my dad passed away, And immediately will say, God works all things together for the good. Um, And it's true. It is 100% true in that moment. When you're mourning, it is almost not helpful and as much painful because you have so much pain right there. You can't even see how it works for good. And so when you've experienced something tragic or a gross injustice in your life, I think that's where you're at. And the problem isn't Romans 8.28. The problem is we start at Romans 8.28. So let's backtrack and start at Romans 8:18. 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Right here, just there's two realities Paul lays out. There's sufferings, and they're present, and there's glory, and a lot of it is future. But those are both guarantees. You know, put those in with death and taxes. If you're a Christian, you can plan on suffering, but also glory. And in that, Paul's particularly talking to the Roman Christians, and this is the suffering of persecution. I think there is an analog, though, in that what follows can apply to all the suffering that we experience. And this is how he explains it. If we look at verses 19 and down into um, 22. For the anxious longing... Of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Okay, so what is this saying? It's saying the fall was not just a humanity thing. All of creation followed. So the the first thing, Adam and Eve sin, and in that, now all of humanity sins. We're all broken. The Bible very clearly says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In that, though, part of the, the punishment for that, if you remember, is God curses the ground so that it does not bear fruit near as easy for Adam. Paul here is saying, beyond just the ground, the whole creation, everything is subject to futility. The NIV would say it is subject to frustration, right? And, and what does frustration come from? Unmet expectations. If you have any frustration anywhere in your life, test this. It's from unmet expectations, If you are frustrated at work, it's because somebody's not doing what you expected. If you're frustrated on the road, it's because you didn't expect that driver to cut you off. Or you did expect them to go right when the light turned green so you didn't get stuck at the red. And so in this, it's saying the creation itself expects paradise. It expects wholeness. It doesn't expect brokenness and suffering and things that go wrong and people hurting. And so it's longing you know, that idea of longing we're seeing in a minute is this idea of like leaning forward of like on the edge of your seat. Like the creation is waiting. But it says this weird thing is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. What does that have to do with anything? Well, it's kind of the order that things were subjected in, right? Humanity fell and now the whole creation is subjected. Well, humanity is redeemed and that's the already not yet. We're redeemed in Christ and we're waiting the fulfillment of that. And creation itself is like, yes, yes, Jesus, please come back so that I can be renewed as well, so that all things can be made whole. Because until then, we have illness, we have natural disasters, we have all these things that bring pain into our life. And it's not just just creation. Um, Paul says in verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, But also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. We'd read that as sons and daughters. The redemption of our body. This is interesting. He says creation is groaning, but also we're groaning. And he says this, and it's really interesting, he doesn't say all of humanity. He doesn't say, oh, all the people cry out, all the nations cry out. He says, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. So is anyone in Christ, anyone that Hebrews would talk about who has tasted the Spirit, us who, who have said yes to Jesus, we're on board with you. It's us who groan because it's us who understand what could be. Right, we know Genesis 1, we know Revelation 21, we know the way the creation was, we know what it's headed to in culmination, and so now we groan. One of my problems is I don't groan enough because I have gotten too happy with this world, right? Like I forget that this is not all there is and what it's supposed to be, and I get pretty comfortable I live in Palm Springs, California. Shoot. Two years ago, I was living in Fort Smith, Arkansas. It is pretty easy for me to get comfortable <laughs> in Palm Springs, California. Um, and so in this, not to make light of our suffering and light of our, our tragedy and, and injustice, but in a way, it is, it is a grace in that it reminds us that this is not our home. This is not our place. As Jeffrey talked about last week about his foot, it reminds me, yeah, there's something better. There's the redemption of our bodies. And the bad news is, you gotta wait for it. <laughs> Paul, Paul says that, and I mean, just to kind of make it clear, he's like, "Yeah, yeah, we're groaning, we're groaning," but I just want to remind you, this is the hope that we are saved in. But hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what is already seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. And so he's saying. Don't get too excited, though. I'm not saying it's here yet. We still have to wait. And I love what he says, wait with perseverance. A couple other translations, I don't think they get it as well as the, the New American. They say, wait patiently. Right? Well, I, I wait patiently um, at the doctor's office. Like, you sit there and just twiddle your thumbs or play on your phone or whatever. Um, but to wait with perseverance is different. Um, when I first met my wife, Ashley, she said, let's go running. And it was a place that i had never gone running before um and turns out she lived in a very hilly neighborhood thank you very much and she's like let's just go running. i'm like well where are we going she goes just follow me and i was like i have no idea how long i don't even know like how hard to run i don't know how much i need to save my energy and that was i, I was just waiting for it to be over that's exactly what it's doing like when is this gonna be done but it was waiting with perseverance like putting in that effort and to be able to wait The fullness of what Christ has given us. And to not lose hope and to not give up takes some of the effort of perseverance. But there's grace. Verse 26 is going to tell us, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we don't know how to pray, as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So, um, and my wife would, would tell you this, um, and then I would ask her to stop. But I am not, like, the most emotional of people. Um, I, I tend to, to keep things pretty academic um, sometimes, and that, that can definitely be a fault of mine. So I have always read this passage as very much a knowledge thing. Like, we don't know how, when we don't know how to pray, God helps us out. He can help us help us understand like if I don't know exactly you know what Pastor Paul needs as I'm praying for him like God will figure it out that's always the way I took this right now looking at it in the light of Bathsheba and her story and backtracking there I think that I don't know is like I can't even articulate what's going on in me and it's not a cognitive thing it is a holistic emotional my life's a mess Like, I want to pray, God, I hurt, or God, I'm angry, but all I can do is, ugh, right? That's the best I can muster today is, God, mmm, ow. Notice here, it doesn't say our groans. It says the spirit communicates with, he intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. What I love about this is it means the spirit is not trying to translate our groans, Right? The spirit, Jesus inside us is just picking up what we said. Right? Mike feels this way and taking it to God. And the father said, and so I love this next verse here. And he who searches, so this is the father. And he who searches the heart, hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. What I love about this is it means God knows, right? So the spirit doesn't even try to translate just like, this is what Mike feels like. And God says, oh, I understand. And the beauty is even when we're so trapped in whatever's going on with us or just lost in our own thoughts, it will not inhibit God from being able to move his plan forward, right? Like it is not contingent on us to be intelligible in our need for God. You just sit there and need him in whatever language it is, whatever series of inaudible um, noises, and and God has got you. Um, And this does not necessarily mean a chain of expletives not directed toward God. The key here is this is directed toward God, right? Um, So, here we are. So at this point, we're still just stuck, and we just know God hears us. More than that, though, he doesn't hear us, he acts. And this is kind of the big promise right in the middle of this section. And Paul is telling, he's reminding them, he's saying, you should, you know this, let me just remind you, because this is one that's easy to forget, it's easy to get lost in our sufferings, lost in how hard things are, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good, To those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. That's all things. Work together. For the good. Everything comes together. And there is a really important distinction there. And that is for those who love God. And are called according to his purpose. But this love God is not like a measurable level. Right? Like. Well, how much, I only like God. Well, you haven't gone to the uh, love God level, so you haven't powered up enough. You haven't uh, reached the new level where everything will work together for the good for you. Um, it'll just work together for the okay, right? Love God a little better. This is not what it's talking about. It's any heart allegiance. It's just saying, where is your heart allegiance? If your heart allegiance is with God, he is working all things together for the good. Let me tell you what this looks like. So I have this friend. His name is Craig. And he was my roommate in college. And in college, he got engaged. And we were like, Craig, good job. You got a pretty girl to say yes to you. And uh, before they got married, she actually broke off the engagement. And very, very quickly started dating a guy that that we had met him. She had been talking to. We didn't know that he was in the picture like that. But very quickly, Craig was heartbroken in this like he was about ready to be married this whole thing then spotlighted some things that God was working on in his life that needed to be worked on that he hadn't been he kind of been ignoring and through this pain this all got brought up additionally Craig uh, got a call to go do a urban ministry in Memphis Um, and the pay was such that he would not have been able to do that had he not been single right? And been okay with eating ramen regularly. And so he goes and for three years does some amazing urban ministry in downtown Memphis. While he is there, he meets a girl who is in that same ministry. They are now much more equally yoked than his former fiance. They're married. They have three kids. And I, you know, getting ready for the sermon, and and I was like, oh, Craig's story, this is going to be the story that I need to tell. So I text Craig this weekend and say, hey, I I need to talk to you on the phone. I want to tell a story about you during my sermon. And he texts me back and says, I can't talk. I'm in the Bahamas. It's our 10th anniversary. (laughs) So how awesome is that? (laughs) Right? Like God works all things together for the good, and it might take time. Right? And so here's a passage I really would like to ignore. (laughs) For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. That foreknew and predestined is the source of so much ink that has been spilled and so much conversation that has happened. And so we are not going to dig into that, except for the idea that God, that foreknew is a relational base. Like God wants to know us, and this predestination is the idea of laying out a course. It's the, kind of the idea of laying out a lane. And it's interesting that what it says here is not salvation. This is why we need to focus on this verse, is it says that he also predestined to become conformed to his image. What we're destined to is to become like Christ. That's what also the good is. When all things are working for the good, it is not necessarily the comfort. Right, It's not necessarily the what I want, but it's to move me to be more like Christ. All things are working so that I might be a better Christian. And not in the sense of a better churchgoer, but using Christian as a little Christ. That I can be a better little Christ. And then he says this. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And and these whom he justified, he also glorified. In that... What he's saying, if you'll notice, outside of the glorified, and we'll explain that in a minute, but all these things, so he's talking to Christians. He's talking to Roman Christians, and what he is saying is he's reminding them God has already done this. He's predestined you to be conformed to his image. That has not happened yet. He has not yet worked everything together for the good. But I'm reminding you he called you so that you are compelled to follow Christ. He justified you so that you are made right with God, and he is guaranteed that you will be glorified. Even though it is not, it's one of those already not yets. Even though it has not seen its consummation yet, the guarantee is there, and we know that guarantee from the Holy Spirit. And so this is kind of saying, here's the down payment on all things working together for the good. It's like if you came in on Sunday morning and said, Mike, I am always so hungry on Sunday morning. I don't like to get up early, so I don't eat before I get here. But then you preachers preach for so long, I'm like starving. Help me out. And I said, oh, I'll bring you a huge breakfast. I'll make it at home, bacon, you know, biscuits and gravy. That's right. I lived in Arkansas. And sausage gravy, of course, eggs, the whole deal. You might be like, what, what business do I have believing you, right? Like, I'll, I'll see it when I believe it. I'll believe it when I see it. Um, but if it's something where I had already been bringing you, like, coffee every Sunday, right, you'd be more compelled to like, he's pretty trustworthy. He'll probably follow through on this. That's the thing with God. We've already seen him moving in our lives, right? And if you haven't, and if you're wondering, and the, the whole predestination foreknowledge thing has you confused, and you're like, I don't believe in Christ. I don't know if he's calling me or not. If you're questioning, he might be calling you. So... Get on board with Jesus. It's really awesome. We're about to see exactly why. Come talk to me afterward. So with that, one thing I love about this passage, so when you preach, you should always give the so what. Like, here's the info and so what. We don't even have to ask so what. Paul does it. What then shall we say? Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? I love that. There's, and he, he goes on, and we're going to dig into those in just a minute. I think he lays out three amazing things. What shall we say about these things? Well, this is what we shall say. If God is for us, who can be against us? And then in verse 37, the second thing we can say is, but in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. I think the third thing we can say is nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. He had to say it twice, right? Look at verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? And then look down, and so he's asking the question there, and then he's answering it in verse 38. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, Will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, which is or the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yeah. So, as we're talking about, you know, what happens if your joy was taken from you, if your joy was stolen? How do you get that back? I think it's things working together toward the good. It's, it's restoration is how that that happens, and it's the love of Christ that cultivates that. So let's talk a minute about that love that we cannot be separated from. The love of Christ, right? What all does that mean? I think the very simplest, and I think there's layers to it, right? The very simplest thing is the affection of Christ. Just like he likes you. Um, and I've told several stories on my wife today, so I will continue that. So sometimes I will... Uh, Joke with her and say, Ashley, I like you. Because she just does things that delight me. And I'm just like, I like you. And she says, We're married. You have to like me. And I said, No, no, no. I have to love you. Liking you is a bonus. And this, that Jesus has this affection that he loves, that he loves us. You know, it says, He knows even, you know, if a sparrow falls to the ground. And he knows the hairs on your head. You are worth more than many sparrows. He cares about you. There's a, a section in Luke in chapter 7 where a, he's walking up to the city gate, and there's basically a funeral procession leaving, and this woman is crying because her son has died. And he says he saw and he had compassion on her, and he reaches out and touches the casket and raises the son. Um, there's another story in Luke where there, he's in the synagogue teaching and there's a woman who is just bent over, just crippled for years and years and years. And it says, not only was it a health issue, but it was because of a spirit. So there's a demonic thing going on there that's causing a physical thing. And he sees and with that compassion, he heals her. The amazing thing about Jesus's affection, as we see in those, those stories right there, it's not without action, Right? the affection always the and he had compassion and then he does something so you can't be separated from the action of the love of god you can't be separated from his comfort from psalm 147:3 says this he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds god cares that sometimes does not happen overnight Right? This is process of continuing to spend time with the Lord and be healed. He provides for us. He takes care of all that we need. You know, even in the midst of all this pain, you're thinking, "I need this to help my pain." And He says, "Seek first My kingdom and My righteousness, and these things will be added unto you." And then, just God is in the business of restoration, right? Like Old Testament, New Testament, all He's doing is restoring stuff, right? Like the prophets are all about. The Israelites have found a way to corrupt the Jewish religion, and he's saying, I'm going to do a new thing. I'm going to give them a new heart. Jesus comes, and John the Baptist comes in front of him. We're doing something new. Repent and be baptized, for the kingdom of God is here. Revelation 21.5, I am making all things new. God is in the business of restoration. If any of you work in construction, you know that restoration can be messy. And can take a lot of time and take a lot of effort. And I think that brings us back to what Paul's saying of with perseverance, we wait patiently. Because God is in the business of restoration, but there's a lot to restore. We're all very broken from our own brokenness. And even as God's working on that, we're broken from other people breaking us. And God is taking care of all that in a way that we can stand, right? That, That will last. And so it's this little by little God building us up. And I think another really important part of God's action with us is this. Um, so in that restoration, what I love, it's Philippians 1.6. Once again, it's Paul. For I am confident that this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. So his love is not just action, but it is committed action that God is not going to stop what he started with you. That goes back to nothing can separate us from the love of God. No outside force, nothing that anyone has done to you, no bad business deal that you have made, nothing that you've gotten yourself into wittingly or unwittingly can separate you from the continued work of Christ who began the work in you and will bring it it says, "Work in you will perfect it, make it complete, until the day of Christ Jesus." One other layer to the love of Christ, and this is the hard one. There's a reason I save this for last. Um, if you, and especially if you are, you know, in, in the middle of something that's been challenging, someone has wronged you greatly, right? If if you are Beth, if this is Bathsheba, and I'm talking to her two days after the death of her son, this is the hardest one. And I would say the layer is reflecting the love of Christ. Nothing can separate us from reflecting the love of Christ. What does that mean? Well, what did Christ do? Just look at his life in the midst of opposition, right? So he's got these Pharisees that are increasingly trying to trick him, trying to, you know, ask his disciples questions when he's not there, that are are making plans behind the scenes that are just opposing him all the time. Here's an interesting thing about Jesus. He doesn't stop loving others, right? So even in the midst of he's facing trials from one side, he is loving others, he's healing, he's preaching, he's still in the temple. So even though we are beat down, I think in reflecting Christ, we're still called to love others, right? And as we keep loving others, eventually... We're going to run out of others who are not the others that wronged us, and that's where we get to the hardest one of reflecting, I think, the ultimate love of Christ when he's on the cross, and in Luke 23, 34, he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. I mean, if you have someone in your life, or someones, or however that may be, that have just done you wrong, whether it's they they betrayed your trust, they undermined you, they're, you know, abusive, you know, any sort of physical things going on there. I mean, if someone has really wronged you, how hard is this? And how can you even say you didn't know what you were doing, right? Like, you knew what you were doing. And that is what, as I was studying this week, this is like the big revelation for me Is when Jesus said this, he said this to people that knew what they were doing, but at the same time didn't, right? No one accidentally punched Jesus out of the soldiers, right? Like someone didn't trip and stab a crown of thorns on his head. A soldier wasn't just like swinging a hammer around and all of a sudden Jesus was nailed to the cross. They knew what they were doing in the sense of they knew what they were doing is wrong, but they did not know the implications of it, right? Right? And that's David too. He knows good. He's supposed to be in battle, and he's just chilling on his roof, right? And so he he knows that. And then he knows like he asked, and Scripture's very clear to point out. He asks, "Who's that girl?" And they say, "It's Uriah's wife," right? They're not just like, "Oh, it's Bathsheba. It's Bathsheba. That's Uriah's wife." And he says, "You know what? Ah, bring her here anyway, right?" Uh, but then he gets down the rabbit hole of all the cover-up, all the conspiracy, and he knows he's doing wrong, but he doesn't realize how much he has trashed other people's lives until Nathan confronts him and says, you're the man, you took the ewe lamb. And David's like, oh, now I understand, right, and this whole wave of guilt, um, and so I, th- I think this is, is a really difficult challenge for us in that reflecting this love of forgive them for they didn't really know what they were doing. Right? Let, me, let me tell you about an example of this reflection. And let, let me look just so I get the last name exactly right. Um, her name is Maggie Barankitsi. She lives in Burundi. She operates a, it's not just an orphanage. It's like a whole complex called Maison Shalom. And Burundi had a terrible, terrible civil war. In 1993, during that civil war, Maggie was sitting there. She was working at a a Catholic church. And soldiers came in. And they murdered 72 people. She had adopted seven kids. She had seven kids adopted at that point. Um. Luckily, none of them were harmed, but her best friend was right there. And her best friend said to her, take care of my children, educate them, but I will die with my husband. And they cut her head off and handed it to Maggie. Awful. Like the the worst thing ever. At that point, that is when Maggie began to get her call of what love looks like. In the most awful of situations, she's like, what could love look like? And God has given her this call that a whole generation of kids in Burundi would not have that ethnic hate, would not have that division, would not have that violence. And so she's operating this Maison Shalom. 30,000 orphans have been through this and have been influenced by it. They operate a mechanic shop. They have a cinema there. And this is one of the coolest things of God working all things together together the good and so they put in a pool and where they put it in was in one of the killing fields where people were executed and Maggie said I want it here to symbolize baptism and the way that covers over our sins right like that's incredible but it you know and 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 in the story, she said, this is when I started to realize my call for a revolution of love. It's not something that happens overnight. It's something God builds. And a lot of times it starts with the weeping. It starts with the brokenness. So we're going to listen to this song. Um, Part part of what we're going to do is we're going to finish with two songs. We started with only two, so we're going to finish with two. So I'd love for you guys to sing along and listen to this song.
1: All I need is to know
0: love about Jesus? Oh yeah, that's a great answer. Uh, Also, he wins. Jesus wins. I like that. And not in that he comes in and dominates everything like, honestly, like his disciples expected, right? And just runs roughshod over everything. But Jesus wins in that he overcomes and overcomes anything. And we see that with Bathsheba as 1 Kings opens. Her son Solomon is now on the throne. The, The first son that she had had passed away, but now her son is on the throne of Israel, which is just amazing. Let me read for you one more time. Romans 8 and... 34, Um, sorry, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? We are being restored through the love of Christ and nothing can separate us from that. That is something to be excited about. Today we are coming from a different angle toward joy and toward being restored, but we're ending in the same place of celebrating the joy of the Lord. So we are going to end with the same song that we ended with last week. Um, Probably one you should stand up for. It's got a little bit of what I would call soul. (laughs) Let, Let me pray for us and we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much just for your word, for worship, for your community of people, Lord, for everything that encourages us, God. We ask that you just continue to support every one of us, Lord, through all the methods of your grace, God. And we just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.